Good morning, gentlemen. How are y'all doing this morning? Doing fine. Good. Well. Good, good. Excellent. Mike, I understand you've got a house full over at your house today. You've got grandkids visiting and children, or one child at least for now, right? Uh, yeah, I've got uh, my oldest daughter uh, and her her uh, her four children. So, yeah, four of the grandchildren. And then I think it's sometime Friday we have the other daughter and her family with the five grandchildren. So we'll have nine grandchildren and and for three other adults in the house with us. So the noise level and the fun level is going to increase tremendously. And I was joking with, um, who was it uh, last night? Um, I think it was uh, Peggy Joe when she, when they, when the ladies were first arriving, I said, look at me now. And I said, uh, Sunday, I'll probably have more gray hair or, or, <laughs> or less hair, <laughs> but I love them. Love them all. Uh-huh. And Marvin, you do you're doing well this morning, brother? I, I'm 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 doing okay. A uh, little uh little stutter with uh, work stuff, uh, but it's something that can be put on hold until we're we're finished here. All right, wonderful. Well, brothers, let's just dive right in. We've got a whole lot to talk about. We want to start off with uh Beaky's two chapters where he's entitled it The Constitution of Man. And uh, we want to look at that, and then we want to go into covenant theology. Now, it's not going to be the whole of covenant theology, but specifically, it's uh, covenant theology in relation to the covenant that God made with Adam. So what we're really going to major on is the covenant of works. And then, you know, we're going to go off from there into the doctrine of salvation. And in that part, we will pick up the covenant of grace. So Beaky does touch on it just a, a little bit here and there, covenant of grace, but it's mainly uh, the covenant of works, the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. But before we do that, Marvin, brother, let's toss it over to you with the constitution of man. And uh, before you get into it, if I could just read, I think uh, the first paragraph on part two is is kind of sets up the the sets the table for really both of the chapters you're going to look at and if i could read that real quick and then toss sure. it over to you um beaky says that uh that well he, he says in the last chapter meaning that the first chapter on the constitution of man we argue that god has revealed in his word that human beings consist of two substances body and soul joined together in personal, vital, and functional unity. In this chapter, which is the Constitution of Man Part 2, we will consider what the Bible teaches about the body and soul. And I, this is what I wanted to emphasize here. He says, it is important to remember throughout this discussion that God has wedded the bo wedded body and soul together, though we may discuss them separately. Only the unnatural judgment of death actually separates them, and that only for a time until the resurrection. We must view both body and soul not as something that people have, but as something that people are. I think that's a good thought to get this get this uh, subject going. So, brother, let me toss it over to you. The constitution of man. What does man consist of? Well, here's where here's where the here's where the water hits the wheel on this. Is we been talking in the previous chapters about uh about man and about his uh, uh his uh constitution and the image of god and what that means even in its marred state uh in 12 and 13 where we get down to it is practical terms as people start asking okay you talk about body and soul um how are they uh, how uh, what are they how are they related 
Uh, how do they function? Uh, are they one? Are they two? Mm-hmm. Are, are they many parts? Can we even talk about parts? Um, and so that's what we'll we'll deal with with, uh, with this. Uh, the first part of chapter 12, and I won't go through all the terms there because it would take quite a while, but he talks about uh, beginning on uh, page 230, he begins talking about the biblical terminology for aspects of the human constitution. Um, and he talks about uh, he talks about breath, uh, which is ruach in uh, uh, in uh, in uh, Hebrew. Uh, the soul. Oh, I like is, that Hebrew, brother. Like you clear your throat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try, try to get authentic there. Uh, it's just as, as someone not native born. It's it's hard, but uh, but then uh, and then he talks about the uh, breath. Uh, the, the breath, of course. Uh, the soul, uh, nephesh, he says, has a broad range of terms that go all the way uh, from the animal world um, all the way up to up to man. And I think he I think he leans a lot on that in terms of uh, and he, he discusses this later. I mean, there are some real relationships between us and animals, biologically, that is. Uh, not to the point to where there is a, a macroevolution in the process there. Uh, but again, I mean, you can see traces of the fact that we are created beings. We are in our states mortal, uh, just as animals are. But by the same token, he, he also says that there is enough flexibility in that word uh, soul uh, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, for that matter, that allow us really to talk about to, to make a meaningful distinction there and to extend that term all the way up to that unique part of humans, which has to do uh, with our awareness of our environment and our relationship with God. And, and I, I pick on that one word in particular, because I think it's, it's, it is uh, uh, clearly representative and one of the best of talking about the continuum here that, that Beaky talks about here. In terms of the in terms of the body and the soul, uh, in the passage you just read, Van from chapter two, I mean, it summarizes and it links very well the two chapters, but it raises the, the primary issue here in the fact that uh, that to talk about the body and soul is to do so in uh, in a reflective way, uh, not a direct way. And what I mean by that is the fact that we cannot, we, we can both by effects, that is by seeing humans, our own human nature, seeing it in others, we can actually see that there's a qualitative difference in our lives, even to the point to where that, as he calls it, the immaterial substance of the soul uh, is actually where we get what we call personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that we are able to distinguish one another, not only not only by differences in bodies and facial features, uh, but also uh, by uh, just as, just as more importantly, by also the inner life, the psyche, as we would say, or as he would say, the soul. Both of those uh, are constitute are constitute. Uh, constitute a human being, and in that regard, then, we cannot separate the two. Uh, we can try to describe them. We can try to, uh, we can try to uh, make distinctions here, but even Beaky, and as he quotes 
uh, Aquinas and many of the reformers, he says that uh, for as we as we've often said when we deal with biology and science and so forth, we don't really have a, an adequate meter to to measure these. Uh, we cannot we, we cannot take the soul and put it under a microscope. Which, by the way, we don't want to chase this rabbit. Which, but which, by the way, in the um, modern uh, study of psychology, which is which is a modern which is a modern study and a modern phenomenon. It used to be, all this used to be under philosophy. Uh, but in this, we have actually tried exactly to do that. And we've actually tried to separate the psyche or the soul and to try to uh, analyze it, uh, analyze it with, with things that artificially isolated it and study it. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, that, that first part with the biblical, de- uh, biblical definitions, I think, uh, if uh, the readers will look carefully at that, you'll you'll see more of what I'm talking about here. Every one of the terms can have uh, can have a reference to a physical part of the body, but it can also be used uh, in in the scriptures in the Old and New Testament often uh, to refer to some non-physical or spiritual aspect of us as well. Which brings us then to the two main aspects of, of, of the chapter, and that is uh, the functional unity of the human person and then the duality. Um, by duality, of course, we mean, as we'll talk about in just a moment, we mean the, uh, the body and the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he talks about the functional unity of the human person, I, I think it's um, uh, in the first paragraph on 232 under the heading there, uh, he says, and this is kind of repeats what you read, the Bible re- represents human nature as a system that functions with considerable unity. Now, that's the key there. The two things there that are key is the word functional and the word unity. What he's saying there is that the first way that we approach this uh, is we understand that in a functional sense that human beings uh, operate as a living soul. Uh, as those who not only are embodied, that is, that they have a physical body of different, uh, uh, of the same type biologically as other humans, but at the same, uh, but, at, but by the same token, due to the ravages of disease and age, uh, differ from each other in that particular regard as well. In, in that way, then, uh, the, the soul actually uh, is the actually is very, very uh, incorporated or bound with, uh, or is bound with the body. As a matter of fact, as he goes on later to say uh, that the the soul and the body are so naturally related to each other that even in death, the soul the soul departs the body, and uh, it goes it goes in. Uh, uh, in, uh, into heaven until the return of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. It goes in a in a glorified state uh, into the presence of God and into paradise. Uh, uh, but it uh, but it ultimately um, uh, waits for the resurrection of the body. Uh, it yeah, is and not. That, can I? Yeah, go ahead. Can please. I just jump in here and make it an interesting point that uh, the Beaky makes and 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 Mike at uh, at our uh, fellowship the other night at discipleship group at Mads, you brought this up how uh, 
the soul doesn't die, but the soul yes. experiences death yes. Yes. through the death of the body. Now that, that's an interesting point. I've never thought of it like that. I've, I've just, to me, I've just kept a, a clear divide between the two, but uh, Mike, I mean, just, just kind of give your comment on that real quick and we'll get back to Marvin as he's walking through this. Well, I just thought it was very, you know, I'd never thought of it in that aspect. I mean, I, the, uh, with, uh, with the soul, but I mean, uh, uh, but it, it, the, as, as we are going through, I mean, I just think it, this topic, just like the, the Trinity, you know, you can talk about it, but it's, it's really, we don't, we can't really fathom the, the entire scope of, of this, in my opinion, but mm-hmm. with the, um, that 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 uh, soul experiencing uh, the, the death or the deterioration of the body, but then you have the the soul also for for genuine believers, we're we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit is is a help helper, and so I I just found Holy Spirit, soul, and body, uh, and um, it, it's just uh, I mean I can't fathom it, I really can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but the fact that our soul goes to heaven in a glorified state, but we're waiting for our body, uh, because he mentions in here uh, that when we pray for sanctification, we pray for the entire person. I mean, so it's, I have my soul in heaven that's been in a glorified state. Now I'm waiting for my body to join me. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I just, it just, uh, it, uh, it's amazing and blows my mind. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if I can add any more to that, man. I, it's really, this is, I, I, excuse the interruption. This is uh, Juliet, one of my granddaughters. Hi, Juliet. Hey, Hi. Juliet. You got your research assistant there, right, Mike? Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> All right. Well, wonderful. You, you, you've got someone sitting on your lap that has a body and a soul. That's right. <laughs> can you say good morning? She just woke up. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I did too. Okay. You can sit over there. (laughs) Sorry, gentlemen. That's all right. Uh, So, Van, I don't know if I can really go into more detail. It's just. just, um... Yeah, no, no, no. I just just wanted you just to touch on that because I thought you made a good comment the other night on that. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, Well, to to follow on that, Paul refers to it, uh, as being unclothed, mm-hmm. uh, that that's what death is. Uh, uh, whenever the spirit departs the body, um, uh, he considers it to be unclothed. In other words, there is a, a natural relationship between the two, uh, that is unnaturally separated at death. Uh, the original design of God in the garden, uh, was that, uh, and, since there was no death in the garden and since it was the punishment for disobedience for breaking the covenant of works, uh, then therefore it was an unnatural, it was an unnatural thing for them. Uh, something that I, I think they probably weren't able quite to grasp until they did. And at that point then it becomes a devastating thing. So in the functional unity, uh, his point here is that, uh, the body and soul together function as a unit. Uh, by that, what we mean is that, um, uh, every aspect of our, uh, every aspect of our soul and, uh, the next chapter re- refers to it in terms of faculties, uh, 
that is knowledge, emotions, and 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 will. Uh, every part, every part of us um, actually uh, actually works together along with the body uh, to to use the body uh, for uh, to carry out what uh, uh, what. Uh, what the soul uh, knows to be uh, the will of its creator and of its redeemer, that is of God. Uh, the two of those together are are what distinguishes us. And uh, as he says, the, rec- the recognition of the functional unity of the human constitution allows for the great mutual influence of the body and soul have upon each other. So much of the New Testament, particularly, and Old Testament for that matter, but Paul's writings, for instance, uh, in terms of when he when he talks about sanctification, uh, he uh, he not only talks about having an increased knowledge of God in the inner man, uh, but very often I think that we've seen this we've seen this in uh, Dan in the Pauline epistles that you preach Philippians Ephesians uh, mm-hmm. all the ones if you go through them. That pretty much that pretty much is is what the latter part of the epistles uh, is about. Uh, it's about uh, divine. It's about divine knowledge. It's about uh, teaching doctrine. It's about uh, laying a, a foundation of knowledge. But the last part of it is actually a working out of that. It deals with practical matters in the church, but it also deals with personal matters. And it almost always has to do with some aspect of the body, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's um, whether it is um, uh, using your using your your members for unrighteousness and sexual immorality, uh, whether it's uh, not uh, treating your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, and in that sense, then um, uh, not as uh, as Paul says to buffet my body, which basically what he means by that is not an asceticism, but he, what he's saying there is an important part of, of the relationship of the functional unity of the body and the soul uh, is to realize that the, that the soul is in control uh, and that the bodies are the members that are used here. The analogy, I think, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to the church as the body of Christ, I, I think, is a, is a good analogy here as well. Christ is the head of the church, and by that, uh, he is its life. Uh, he is its teaching. Uh, he is its direction. He is everything to which the the church, the members of the body, are uh, operate under under that through the Holy Spirit, and they carry out the will the will of Christ, the will of the Father. In that same way, I think in that same analogy, then uh, the relationship of the body and the soul. That's that same thing there. Uh, the body should be carrying out the should be carrying out uh, through learning the will of God, through uh, the desires and the emotions of knowing God, and and by will to uh, to uh, to yield our members into uh, into into um, uh, uh, live out before God in that way. So there's always that practical element in Paul, and I think you you see that in this as well. He also, by the same token, uh, refers or talks about the duality of body and soul. Um, and what he means by that, of course, is that uh, if we talk about a functional unity, it may lead us, if we don't check ourselves, 
uh, to do or to declare or to think some of the things we've been talking about. And, and that, that is that, uh, that they are, they are a union in the sense that the destination of one is, is the destination of the other. Now, ultimately that's the case. Um, as he makes the point in the next chapter, uh, even the body itself, we, we know that the, uh, that the soul of a person upon death now uh, goes to a place of either reward or to, or to a place of punishment. Mm -hmm. uh, the body will also then follow in that same way, not just the resurrection of believers, but also the resurrection of the unbelievers or the wicked uh, to occupy their, uh, to occupy their bodies, uh, to, uh, to undergo the punishment that he does. And again, I, I don't know if we'll have time to get to it or not, but in the next chapter, uh, he has, I think, a fairly good discussion of what we would call annihilationism. That is, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's a teaching. I'm surprised even John Stott, I think, taught this, yeah. uh, which is uh, w which is a very subtle thing in the sense that uh, they use biblical passages to to teach that not only um, uh, uh, not only in death. Uh, is the body destroyed, but also, yeah, but also the soul is as well. Uh, that is of the unrighteous, uh, body and soul. Uh, it is by the grace of God that for believers that actually they are raised um, and joined to their bodies in a glorified state. But for the unbelievers, it, it actually is not eternal punishment. It just simply is all the faculties that we know and experience as human beings in the unity of the body and the soul, it's like a candle that's extinguished. At that point, then uh, there is there is no more. Uh, certainly, there is no more of the earthly pleasures of family, friends, uh, um, pets, uh, food, uh, all the things that we have here. Uh, but uh, but the ex but the extinction of everything, and that I guess is supposed to be eternal punishment. That is simply to go out of existence and to, it would be as if you never existed. Uh, Beaky, I think, has a good response to that in the fact that, uh, that certainly that's not a biblical way of doing that. Uh, and he also makes the point that the, the word there to cast the body and the soul, uh, body and soul into hell, uh, that the word there for cast is also in the semantic range of it is also a word that can mean ruined. Uh, and that more closely fits, I, I think, the New, uh, the New Testament idea of this or the biblical idea of, the, of this uh, in the fact that the body of the wicked will be um, uh, will be uh, raised and joined to uh, their their uh, to their uh, to their spirits in judgment and in punishment and torment uh, in the sense that in the sense that the body then is ruined. Uh, as it was, uh, even more so than it is in this life, that it is ruined to join that disobedient spirit. And there, not only to not live to the glory of God, uh, but also to be, uh, as he uses the analogy of a wineskin, and he says that's one of the, one of the, 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 the ways the word is used there, uh, of an old wineskin with new wine, the new wine expands and it, it explodes and ruins the wineskin. Uh, so he says at that point, then, that the ruined humanity of the lost then joins their soul to where uh, the two of those together, 
as it offered a hope through common grace of the of the of the uh, of the gifts uh, that we had in life and of the enjoyments that we had there there is a constant is a constant knowledge uh, of the fact uh, not only of separation from god uh, but also the joining of the body to that really to match up with the total separation depravity and utter isolation without the common grace of god through all eternity in other words it's a way for the lost to see how bad bad can really be they don't know in this life by the common grace of god they uh, the rain falls on them uh, they walk through a field and they enjoy the flowers just like we do but they did but they never they use all their faculties uh of their uh, of their soul and and they use the members of their body actually in act of disobedience to that uh, common to that common grace mm -hmm. uh, or to that general revelation that they receive uh, uh through that um so uh when, when he talks about the uh, duality of the body and the spirit uh, he talks about about something called anthrop anthropological monism, uh, which again he throws around a lot of five dollar words in here. But yeah. anthropo anthropological monism just simply means uh, that it takes the functional unity and tries to bring it over into the identity of uh, the body and the spirit. It, it more particularly, I and I think uh, I don't have time to get into this, and nor would this maybe be the the form of doing that. But on uh, two thirty four, he he. Uh, it references Thomas Hobbes uh, in, in the uh, 16th century, uh, late 16th, early 17th century. He says an influential early modern philosopher who advocated monistic materialism was Thomas Hobbes, who argued that psychological states are merely effects of physical biology. And uh, that is a, that's a view of mine, again, in artificial intelligence. That's the that's the prevailing that's the prevailing uh, mindset in the development of artificial intelligence. Uh, it says that our that says that our psychological states, what we would call the soul, are really are, are really just mapped onto biology, and they're merely effects of the underlying biology. Uh, in other words, they're they're uh, everything ultimately is material or biological in nature. Uh, and of course, we know that's not the case. Uh, and also, uh, uh, it, it also raises the real question uh, of what is intelligence, uh, and that is in this life. I mean, we know what intelligence uh, intelligence is: uh, the functional unity of the body and the soul. Uh, it, it's a matter of being created in the image of God. Whenever we try to lift intelligence and try to map that on uh, uh, so-called states states of mind which was a term that marvin minsky used states of mind or society of mind trying to map those uh, onto biological states it leads us to absurd notions like uh, that the mind or the brain is just wetware in the sense that uh everything is stored there uh, every experience of the soul uh everything there so that Theoretically, and this is and this is the, the this is a topic of some very entertaining uh, science fiction. Uh, uh, by by that very notion, then you can uh, preserve you can uh, preserve the brain of a person in, in such a state that biologically it does not die, but then it can be reactivated, and either then 
can on another body can then be implanted in a new body and then that and then that person that all that person's experiences and so forth then animate that body in the same way that the old one did which is an absurd notion uh for a lot of reasons um but that's where uh, the monism comes in in that sense that uh he, he by the same token he also talks about those like uh the 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 uh, uh modern um liberals who go to extreme dualism and he talks about bultmann and and uh johnny t robinson uh interesting he also talks about the neo-orthodox theologians uh, bruner and bart mm -hmm. uh and and says they prefer to talk about spirit as functions uh and bruner does and talks about man as being an ontological man as a unity in other words he takes he takes the 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 union of the body and soul not only in functional unity but also as he says an ontological unity that is they really are the same Bart says the same thing, and he says that ultimately it's not worth studying. It's not worth peering into. Mm -hmm. uh, Bart says, while insisting that the Bible does not explain what men consist of, and he says uh, this, is, this is not an area uh, that we ultimately will reach uh, a complete agreement on, um, and, and I think even Beaky concedes that ultimately everybody resolves that to mystery but he says the bible doesn't do that but it focuses entirely on human relationships to god uh and he says that's 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 the that's the soul in in relationship and, and that's the way we measure it um he says something that we've already talked about the bible especially distinguishes the body and soul at death uh and indeed there is a there is a clear separation of those um that uh we that is is clearly seen uh, at a funeral and uh, that is in a non-cremated non-cremated funeral uh, which one again by the ways uh i'm i don't want to chase a rabbit here but uh in terms of cremation i, I don't judge anybody for doing that but i think there is so i, I think it, it theologically uh it's not just a matter for the family but theologically i think it's even more meaningful there to have a dead body and to have an open casket in the sense that uh, as people are lying there, it is clearly, it is clearly evident that this body has ceased to be uh, and that even in sleep or even in rest, that body betrayed a vitality or a life that now has gone. Hmm. Um, and I think it's so important to, I think it's so important to see that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I did a funeral about a month ago for uh, one of the members uh, at, at Beulah, um, and it was helpful to have the body there. And as a matter of fact, what I did when I preached is I talked about that body and about the separation there and talked about the consequences of uh, of life and of death. Um, and, it's, and it's very important to, to see that, I think. Well, he has some objections to duality, and I'm, for the lack of for the lack of time here, I'll just uh, I, I'll just note them and and move on. Uh, he says um, the idea of, of uh, duality, that is the uh, the recognition that body and soul are different, but yet they are in unity. He says, first of all, biblical duality is merely functional. That is, he says, and that's kind of what Barton Bruner say as well. Uh, is a way it's it's just another way of talking about relationship. Uh, we use uh, we use antiquated terms to talk about that, 
Beaky, I think, has a good response to that. He says, secondly, biblical holism must control the entire doctrine of man. Uh, and he says here, this has been um, uh, th- uh, even some uh, heavyweight reformed theologians that we would respect and that we read actually have adopted some form of this. Uh, biblical holism must control the entire doctrine of man. Uh, in other words, it sometimes is referred to as a psychosomatic unity or, uh, of life, the, the, the unity of the body and the soul. Uh, he talks about Burkauer and, and uh, Hokema uh, and, and talks about how this is a puzzling position, but at the same time, they also talk about the, the separation of the body and soul, as we all do in a biblical term, uh, in ter- un- until death. Uh, at that point then, or uh, separation at death, and then at that point then, uh, both the, the righteous and the unrighteous are reserved for their particular bodies. He says it's an interesting, and he thinks kind of a puzzling way to do that. He says, thirdly, duality leads to a divided worldview. By that, he means that it is, um, uh, it, it, he, he says that uh, in doing that, that it encourages this idea in life uh, of the distinction of the secular and the sacred. Uh, that whenever we really see uh, a biblical duality of body and soul and a functional unity of such, um, uh, that, that it, uh, that it actually is an integrative whole, uh, and that it helps us then to see everything from, as Calvin would say, through the eyeglass of scripture, he says to separate those actually is to lose that and to begin to give them their separate areas of investigation in a bad way. They can be investigated separately but they should never be investigated separately in the sense that they are identified as, as, uh, as, as two aspects that have no union or no interaction. They are completely unified with each other. Fourthly, he says a combination of unity and duality is not plausible. Um, and, and I love here, and again, I'll, I'll skip out of the chapter at this point because I know we're running along here. Uh, I, I love the illustration on page 239. And I want to read what Millard Erickson says here, because I think this is great. Um, first, uh, there, uh, he says on page 239, Millard Erickson proposes a helpful analogy to human unity and duality in a chemical compound. Um, he says, let's illustrate what salt consisting of sodium chloride. Sodium in itself is a metal that, act, that reacts violently with water while chlorine is a poisonous gas. So he says, on the one hand, you have them uh, both, uh, each of them isolated separately are rather toxic. Uh, They are not something not only that are healthy for you, they're not healthy for any living being. And certainly to make that a, 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 a required staple of your diet would indeed be ludicrous. Um, However, uh, he says, Salt is not a metal box holding a gas, and I think that's a that's a great that's a great explanation of that. It's uh, sodium chloride is not sodium, the metal holding or uh, a metal box holding chlorine the gas, uh, but rather he says salt consists of chlorine and sodium atoms atoms intermingled and bound together to form crystals, and that's the key there. Salt has qualities very different from either individual element, 
qualities that make salt tasty, soluble in water, and useful for life. In popular language, we sometimes refer to salt content simply as sodium, such as in the phrase it's reduced sodium and low sodium, even though sodium is only one element in the compound. He says, then similarly, human nature is not a body holding a soul like a box holds a gas. And I think that's so important to understand here because this has been uh, the basis of so much theological error uh, through the years. Uh, is whenever is whenever we uh, is whenever we uh, try to separate in an artificial way the body and the soul and to favor one over the other, uh, it leads to very very unbalanced living and very very unbalanced thinking. Um, on the one hand, uh, to uh, to just uh, to just uh, pay attention to the body uh, is to just live for pleasure and to see pleasure as the highest good of man, uh, which Plato and Aristotle do. Uh, but at that point then, that, that's where we draw meaning. Uh, 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 by the same token, on the, uh, on, on, the, on the other side, if you just uh, uh, separate uh, soul by itself, uh, you begin to think that that is the most important and the separable feature of us that we see, for instance, in Gnosticism. And it's a, it, it even is an error that John addresses in his three letters, particularly mm-hmm. in the first one, uh, in, terms of, in, in terms of the fact that the soul is the most important part of us. And as such, then, uh, the soul grows by knowledge. Um, and, and as it does, then, uh, the most important part of us is the higher knowledge that we obtain in a mystical and a private way. Uh, and that's the measure of our quality and our worth uh, as, as individuals apart from other people. Um, it is the mixture of those two, the body and the soul, the sodium chloride, so to, so to say, uh, that is indeed the very genius of God in creation, is the fact that he brought both those together in a noticeable and a distinguishable way but by the same token, one cannot exist without the other. Just as sodium chloride, to remove either element is to go to a level of toxicity uh, that, it, uh, that is not useful. Uh, and it, it may be, I think of Jesus saying about what good is salt if it's lost its saltiness. It's only good really to be uh, 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 thrown under the foot of men and trampled. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the same thing the kind of same thing here as well okay uh any comments on that before i go to part two and i promise i'll 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 go through part two quicker than that the the one thing that oh go ahead go ahead i guess that that you know through through my years uh as a believer that we we talk you know you hear a lot talk about renewing the the renewing the uh, the the heart and the mind renewing of the soul but it you know, very seldom does taking care of the body uh, uh, is emphasized. You know, you got to take care of both. You got to nourish yeah. both. You got to exercise yeah. both. And it, uh, to me, again, it gets back to then you have the Holy Spirit that indwells us and, and the, the impact of the Holy Spirit right. on the soul and the body. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Mike. And I, I think you see this in Paul's advice to Timothy. Uh, he says, uh, bodily exercise is profitable, but he says, basically, uh, the exercise of the soul is, is more important because the soul actually is, uh, actually animates the body for obedience and for service. 
So Paul is not telling uh, is not telling Timothy there. Uh, hey, lay ar- lay around and slam as many chips as you can. <laughs> uh, to use a to use a modern analogy here, he's saying both of those are useful, but they're but they're useful in their own spheres. Again, there's that functional unity of the body and the soul, uh, where the soul is affected uh, by the body and the body by the soul. They're they're so intermingled that uh, uh, that what happens to one happens to the other, and it really is. A live, it is really like a living organism, not only in the biological sense, but in the full sense of body and soul, uh, mortal and immortal. Uh, it, it really is an amazing thing. Yeah, I like what John Piper uh, says about uh, uh, you know feeding the soul with the truth of the Word of God. Yeah. But yet, what would be the quality of that if you have? not slept for two nights exactly then then your body is really informing that you know exactly i uh i I had uh, i think van i've told you mike i've told you as well but some of the best advice i ever heard was from curtis vaughn uh who taught me greek at southwestern and one of the greatest men i ever knew uh but i was taking a uh a a book study course in first 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 and second peter we only got through first peter because unfortunately uh that was the that was the uh uh, that was semester his wife died his wife lingered from cancer for several years and she finally died and so i mean but uh, one thing he, he did say and he said this in new testament greek uh he says you know he knows he said guys sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just get a good night's sleep and I think Van, that's what you're saying as well, uh, is mm-hmm. the fact that the body and the soul work together. I mean, you can't run the body ragged and expect to have a vital spiritual life. As a matter of fact, for all the things, and I think you guys would agree, for all the for all the for all the remarkable things David Brainerd accomplished in his life, he died what Van at the age of thirty, thirty one, yeah, something like that. Thirty one, thirty one. Thirty one, yeah. yeah. Uh we have to say that's a legitimate criticism of, of him and the fact that he just he just ran his body he just ran his body down. Uh, now again, ultimately God is a judge of that, but again, I think it's a great illustration of the point we're making here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Let's go then to the Constitution of Man, Part Two: Body and Soul. Uh, and here uh, he he gets into more particular detail about. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. Let's say we believe in body and soul and we believe they are, uh, separate entities. And and that's the word that, that, uh, he refers to, he refers to the soul. Beaky does refers to the soul as an immaterial substance. And he goes on later in the chapter to say that this is an awkward way philosophically and theologically to talk about it. Uh, is because we think of substance in terms of um, having three dimensions. You know, it has weight, matter. In other words, it it can be. Uh, it, in other words, it it can be measured. Uh, what Beaky says is that the better, uh, if you were to use the word substance, which is not bad. As a matter of fact, in the uh, Mike, you were talking earlier about the Trinity. I think, as I was reading through these two chapters, and certainly the chapters that preceded it, I think. That these that these chapters, if you really study them carefully, are very very helpful in in trying to not only to 
to gain a grasp of the the uh, the absolute mystery and marvel of the Trinity, uh, but also as we try, even in ourselves, to try to uh, to try to distinguish body and soul, and, and to see and to see where one is not uh, when, where one is not overwhelmed by the other. We see this, and confessionally, we confess this in in Christ, don't we? I mean, we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he is fully God and, fu- and fully uh, fully God and fully man, uh, in a sense that in his fi- that in his physical state, I mean, he is subject to the same weaknesses and and things uh, physically and uh, having a body and everything that comes with that. Uh, but he also, in his spirit, is absolutely pure, so that his spirit, in that point, then not not under the dominion of sin, then is able then to completely control his body to do as he says what he sees the father doing in other words it, that vital unity between the body and the soul of christ is indeed the very secret to his complete obedience to god he had mastery over he had mastery over that body that he says god gave to him and at that point it was and we see the opposite of that in the life of the disciples, you see in some of their greatest points of failure that they actually illustrate the opposite. But I think, I think this is a great way, actually, I, I, to me, I say to anyway, I think it's a helpful way to try to come to, to try to come to an understanding of the Trinity uh, in, in that sense and trying to understand in ourselves uh, the composition of, uh, of body and soul and then projecting that into Christ and understanding what is in us in a sinful and an imperfect and a struggling way actually was in Christ. I think it's, I, I think uh, to me, when I read that and I think about it, uh, I think it really is the power of uh, when, uh, when the writer of Hebrews says uh, that he, uh, uh, that he is able to, uh, to help us in, in every temptation. Uh, Paul in first Corinthians 10 says that there's no temptation such as, uh, uh, that you have as such as common God, but God will give you away with that to, to, when it says that when the right of Hebrews says that Christ learned obedience through his sufferings, it is, it blows our minds to think that, uh, to think that Christ had to learn obedience, but that is part of his human nature, just as it is with us, just as it is with us. We learn obedience as well. The, the writer of Hebrews says Christ learned obedience through his sufferings. In other words, the things that were happening to him, not only to his body, but also to his spirit as well. It was in reaction to those, to a sinful world living living in an embo- uh, living in an embodied state. It was that which actually taught him, and it also makes him, I think, able to be such an effective and powerful high priest for us because he truly does understand we're going through because he lived through it. Was he tempted by every single thing that I am? Of course not. Of course not. That's not the point there. Uh, but, But the point there is the fact that he knows, that he knows how to bring the body under subjection to the soul in such a way that the two of those in an integrated unity can be used while still maintaining your distinct identity though in an integrated unity can be used 
to uh, offer your members to God for righteousness and to walk in a way that pleases him. I, now, I now think, Marvin, just to jump in here, now we we would make the distinction correct though that that yes, Christ had all the limitations of a human body, but he did not experience the limitations of a sinful human body with all the degrading effects that sin brings to the body, just as it brings to the to the whole of creation, right? Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. I yeah I I, I want to make I want to make that point as well uh, is the fact that uh, I am I am not affirming the ability of Christ, <laughs> and you guys would rightly boot me off and 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 hold on one second, hold on one second. Now you you uh, on my end you glitched when you were saying the word uh, peccability. You you said peccability, right? You said I'm not. Yeah, affirming I mean, the I'm not affirming. The, I'm not affirming the peccability of Christ. Okay, but but I you am do affirming. Affirm I am affirming the impeccability. Yeah. Of okay. Okay. See that that was a bad place to glitch right there with that <laughs> yeah. word peccability or No, but again, I mean, and there's and there. This goes to the whole theological point. Is well, how can you be? Uh, how can you be a sympathetic and powerful redeemer and and uh, mediator for me? Uh, if, if he doesn't understand sin, well, he does understand sin, but not in the sense that he ever committed it. Mm -hmm. Um, he under, he understands, he understands the power of sin, uh, though never having experienced because he can, well, it goes to the point. And again, I'm, I've, I've long since <laughs> lost track here and I, I, I'll do a couple of things and then, and I'll leave here. Uh, but it does, it does go to the fact, uh, uh, of the, are, are the, uh, are the three temptations in the wilderness? Are they real? Are they real temptations? Um, in other words, is this a real test? Um, they are really enticements for him that are particularly fitted for him, uh, in, in ways that they're not fit for us. There is no way that I could gain all the kingdoms of the world. There is no way that I could, uh, as a matter as a matter of belief and doctrine with good biblical foundation to believe that if uh, to believe that if I were God's chosen one then I could throw myself off a temple and 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 the angels would catch me in that I mean there are some you know uh, and then the turning breast to stone after 40 days of fasting are those real temptations well in that sense then we have to believe that they are uh, but yet without sin. And that's why at that point, then we see, we see, uh, there's a real suffering that goes on in Christ then, which is, uh, which, which brings him, uh, to learn as the writer of Hebrews says to learn obedience. So, yeah. And then I would just also add this too. Yeah. It says in scripture that, that Christ earned righteousness and that righteousness was built upon obedience Exactly, and really obedience is, 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 uh, you know, it's it's vacuous if there's not a sense in which those temptations are real. But yet at the same time, as you did say, we do affirm the impeccability of Christ. Uh, the temptations were real, but yet in a sense, you know, him being the God man, he would have never succumbed to those temptations. Right. And how that comes together, uh, 
it's we don't know exactly we 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 don't know but but again i think a perfect picture you see christ in the garden of gethsemane and you cannot say that that is not a struggle about going to the cross i mean he's sweating drops of great blood and so whatever's going there is real whatever's going on there is real but yet at the same time he was christ crucified from before the foundation of the world Exactly. No, that's, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. Um, and in that sense, then his temptations are real again. We need to, we need to understand the word temptation in its broader context. A temptation really in its most basic form is just a testing is what it is. Um, in other words, it tests you to elicit what's in you when Christ is tempted as Van, as you said earlier, I mean, he's fully divine when he's tempted, uh, in his body in a real way, it elicits who he really is. Uh, his obedience then is a real human obedience, but it is also obedience as, as him who is fully divine, but yet still has, uh, still has, uh, a body and a soul as we do yet without sin. Yep. Um, he talks about the goodness of the body as God's creation. He says that the human body, though made of elements found in the earth, did not uh, arise by a natural process, but by a supernatural work of God. I think that's a very important point to make. Uh, and there is, again, when we talk about the similarities we have with the created order, particularly animals, uh, I, I think it's important there. Um he says the goodness and value of the human body overthrows negative views of our physical life and the activities that sustain it. Um, the importance of the body for holiness. We've already talked about that. He says the human body plays a critical part in the process of sanctification, a huge part actually, uh, to the point to where, uh, uh, we are called, we are called to, uh, uh, uh mortification, uh, uh, Van didn't didn't Owen write uh, pretty much a whole volume on that, didn't he? On mortification. Yeah, more. Uh, well, his book Mortification of Sin, but mortification. But yeah, of they, sin, yeah, he's got a lot of other writings, like in his collected writings, and they they've kind of thrown the the title of that one smaller writing on all those writings that he did right. on sin. But yeah, right. Yeah, which let me just make a plug. I highly recommend uh reading you know mortification of sin it's a short little work and it's a wonderful little work where owen talks about that and how we need to uh uh well nip it in the bud who who was the guy who was uh, Arnie five nip it, yeah, nip it in the bud right. yeah that's right that's what he says that's what he says yeah um two 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 more things and i'll be done here uh in the human soul he says as we are looking at and studying the human soul, uh, we need to do so again, understanding this word substance doesn't quite fit. It's more like an entity, but he says, we study the soul in terms, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of what he, what he says are the, um, uh, are the, uh, not the, uh, the, the, um, not the, not the, uh, functions but the uh over, over, overcoming it here uh essence 
you know, well, the essence, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also the, uh, um, well, basically the faculties, uh, the faculties. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Van. The, the faculties of the, the faculties of the soul, which we normally would see as, uh, as understanding, uh, of, um, uh, uh, understanding of emotions and of the will. Uh, he makes the point in here that there is a uh, uh, that there's a distinction between even the Reformed theologians who talk about the faculties in those three terms, uh, emotion or understanding, emotion and will, and those like Calvin and uh, an impressive list of others who just talk about it in terms of understanding and will, saying that will encompasses desire. And it's an interesting idea, and when you think about it, it it's really a very powerful idea. Uh, in the sense that, again, I've, I've used this illustration before, uh, but it was the very basis of that old uh, uh, commercial years ago uh, by Sprite. Uh, Sprite advertised, obey your thirst. Uh, well, I think that's a perfect illustration of this when you talk about the, when you talk about, uh, the faculties in terms of understanding and will. The, will. the will will be driven by whatever you love or whatever you desire. I, it's not wrong to look at it in the three ways that the others do, but I think to look at it in the two ways, it lays a lot on will to say, uh, I think to go beyond this idea of the fact that it is, uh, uh, that it is that which, um, uh, that it is that which, um, uh, uh, is isolated, is isolated by itself. So anyway, um, the last thing I, I very, very quickly, uh, he talks about how does it, how does the soul become formed into a man? Uh, in other words, how do we gain a soul? He says there are three different ways. There's the eternal soul, which again is an ancient Greek term in terms of the immortality of the soul. We don't believe that, that there is basically an eternal pool of souls with which we gain one. Uh, there's also the, um, uh, there's also the uh, tradition uh, in a sense that uh, gaining a soul, you actually gain a soul in, uh, uh, from your parents in the act of procreation or reproduction. And then finally, there's a creation idea where each pro where God creates each soul individually. So I'm so sorry, guys, I went way too long with that. No, no, that, that was all very good. And, and as a matter of fact, why, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we save our discussion for, covenant theology uh we'll start with it next time and uh and that'll kind of put us in a neat order where we can do the three parts of god's covenant uh with adam uh and that'll be the three chapters we look at next time when we start off but uh that being that'd the be case four, 14 got, 15 and 16 you think yeah that, yeah that what exactly. you're talking about? okay all right yeah so uh so we will uh uh, so yeah, we'll do that, but just in the few minutes we have, uh, I just want to bring out a couple of things and then Mike, if you want to give any comments on, you know, what Marvin has talked about, talking about okay. the constitution of man, but, uh, on, on page 252, uh, just two things I, I want to bring out one, one leading up to a question. Uh, he says in the paragraph before the last paragraph, he said the continuation of a person apart from the body after death implies that the core of human personality lies in the soul and not the body. Therefore, souls are evidently personal substances with understanding and will. Prior to death, they dwell in or with our bodies. After death, they are with the risen Christ or in a place of torment. 
Therefore, souls have locations. Furthermore, yeah. if the soul is the core of the person with its thoughts, feelings, and choices, then the soul must be able to interact with the material world in order to direct the body and receive information and impressions from the physical senses. So uh, first thing to, to comment on based on that, uh, help us out, Marvin. How do we think about this? How do we think uh, we talk about uh, uh, humankind being made up of the material and immaterial, the right. body, obviously the material, the soul mm -hmm. immaterial. Now with the soul being immaterial, how can we think of the soul being localized? In other words, uh, if, if, if I die, my soul is not here anymore. It is over there. How can we think about that? How can we think about a soul, something immaterial being, well, you're not on this side of the room, but you're over on that side of the room. Right. Well, that, that goes to, that's great a question. And it goes to the whole idea. When we talk about the soul as an immaterial substance, again, we're not talking in physical terms, but we are, but we are by the same token, uh, uh saying it's not limited by the physical, which obviously not separated to death, but by the same token, when we talk about it as a substance, we are talking about it with definable properties and a definable existence uh, separate from the body. And in that sense then, yeah, in terms of a localization of that, that would be a part of that. Just as the body can be localized, so the soul can as well. It's unique. It's unique to that person. And if we believe then that, um, uh, that in that, uh, unity of the body and the soul uh, at death uh, the spirit the soul is, is separated from the body uh, but in its essence it's a part of that body as well in other words the two of those are unity then at that sense then theologically we have to think even though we don't understand the spatiality and the and the specific locations and, and and all the physical aspects of that. We also have to believe by the same token, if we take the Bible seriously, that there is a locality of the soul. Then that means that uh, if it does not die with the body, then it has to maintain its identity and it has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, if it doesn't go into the into the grave with the person, then it has to go somewhere. And so then not only does it go, as the Bible says, uh, to be with the Lord, but there's also an individuality there as well that uh, the Bible teaches us will help us or we will be, even though we are not in an embodied state, we will still be able to recognize each other even as glorified spirits in heaven until the time that we receive our bodies bottom line is i don't i, I don't understand that but it, it <laughs> yeah but but it follow it follows it follows from that yeah and that, that's a hard thing for me is, is to think of something uh you know as soon as you think of something localized you're automatically thinking yeah. about it spatially you know? Exa exactly <laughs> that that's the that's the key very good man that's the key there uh even though we we have to we we think of it spatially because actually if it's in if it's in our dimension if it's joined to us it is spatial in that sense even though it's non-material in other words it has an existence we just don't understand what the nature of that existence is yeah and then and to be able to say okay well well it's in you right now yeah exactly even that exactly. even that question that, that does is it in you to the sense that somehow it fills you all the way down to the tip of your fingernail on your pinky finger or is it as some people uh sort of give the the hypothesis that it's something within the brain or 
I, I don't know. I mean, we just have to take it on faith. Like you say, well, we, that, we don't know. That is another, uh, Rene Descartes does, does localize it to the brain. He says it's located in the pineal uh, gland of the brain. Hmm. Uh, and that was, and that was the predominant view for centuries, uh, in the fact that when we localize a soul, it's localized into that area of the brain. Of course, we don't believe that anymore. Interesting. Okay. One more thing I wanted to bring out and Mike would throw it to you for, for any, uh, any last, uh, comments there, but I thought this was very important. The very next paragraph, he brings out something I think, especially in our culture, we need to understand. Yeah. He says, personhood does not hinge upon the development or proper functioning of the body whether a human being is a tiny embryo in the womb a child who is mentally disabled a veteran with a disability or an elderly woman who no longer recognizes her own children he or she consists of both body and soul and therefore is a person though such a human being may not be able to function with the full expression of personality he or she remains essentially personal Therefore, we must treat all human beings with the dignity and justice owed to people. I, I say, Amen, Brother well, Beaky. <laughs> no, that is a great paragraph, and I, I I had it marked to quote, but I ran out of time. Uh, yeah. Mike, what do you what do you think about that? Well, I had it marked to quote too. And in fact, I yeah. was I was going to bring up because it goes back to you know we got body and soul, but we also got to remember too that we are all created in the image of God, right. because yep. the likeness. And and yep. and I even wrote that in my margin, image of God. You know, we need we need to remember right. that we're, we're, we body, soul, image of God. Uh, believers are endowed with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but it, it also goes to the larger question of when do we get a soul? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the lighter part of what I was talking about there. And you, you guys are going to have to, uh, uh going to have to make me smart on that. Yeah. Well, and actually well, Be Beaky really doesn't take a position on it either. Strangely enough. Yeah. He, I, 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 I think, I think he, I think know. he, yeah, I think he sees, I think he sees benefits in the tradition and the creationist, uh, but he really doesn't take a position on it. But in either one of those positions, though, whenever there is life, whenever there's a human being, they they there is body and soul at the start. Exactly, whether it's tradition, yeah. yeah. whether sure. you're saying whether this is generated, you know, from your parents, or whether you take the creationist view, where where God, as soon as you know there's conception, you know, there is body and soul together. Right. God is giving exactly. that life at that moment, and it comes straight from God. It's His creative work right there and then apart from exactly. the means of human generation. Yes. David says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Made. Yeah. 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 Hey, that's one of the quotes in uh, our reading. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Mike, well, bro brother, you got any closing comments? Uh, let's just throw it to you for any, any closing comments and, uh, and then close us in prayer. And again, we will start off with, uh, with you, on God's uh, covenant with Adam uh, next time. Uh, we don't have Will with us next time. We're missing him, so, I mean, this time. So hopefully we'll have him next time and he can take his chapter on the historical development of the uh, covenant uh, uh, that God made with Adam. And then we will continue on with the, the third part of that as well. So Mike, closing comments and then close us in prayer, brother. Okay, I guess my closing comments would be just from the readings of 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 just what we've talked about today, but even the readings getting into the covenant. When we look at creation and 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 how God went about uh, speaking uh, things into existence, and then the the uh, develop the creation of man, 
and just looking at the marvel of creation and, and just looking at the human body and how we're all put together. I mean, this to me just, I mean, you, yeah, I, I had to, I had, you know, kind of lean back in my chair and say, wow, we mm-hmm. are wonderfully made. I mean, yeah, yeah. this couldn't have just at random or by, uh, um, well, what's the theory, a, a chaos theory. I mean, right. it, this is something that really solidifies the, that there is a supreme a God uh, 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 that that is a, a our Creator, our our Heavenly Father. And isn't so isn't, big, isn't kind of the same sense you had when you were uh, studying the Trinity and trying to understand yeah. that? I think there's yeah. a there's a lot of overlap here. Yeah, absolutely. But I'll I'll I just I've enjoyed reading this, and it was just uh, it's just you know reading the chapter after chapter, you know, it's like wow, <laughs> this is really. Uh, I like the way uh, Beaky can ride in a way that I think anybody, I won't say maybe, but most people can understand. It, it's very, very, very understandable the way he writes and the, and the scripture he gives to, to, to that he's bringing out as he, he discusses uh, the topic. Yeah, and it's not just theological, but it's doxological. It, yeah. it really lifts yeah. our hearts up to the Lord yeah. and in worship and praise to God for what He's done. And and Beaky's very careful to bring those elements out as well. It's almost like like Paul with his writing. Paul is is doing you know doctrine, 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 and then Paul just has to stop and give praise to the Lord right. for all this wonderful truth. Exactly. All right. Well, Mike, do you want to close us in prayer, brother? And we'll let you get to those grandkids. <laughs> okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, just uh, thank you for this time that we've had to share together, Lord, and to discuss the uh, just these chapters in Beaky's Systematic Theology book, Lord. Father, it's just, uh, as I mentioned, it, it's just amazing uh, how uh, the complexity of creation and the, the body and the soul and... Uh, you know how the soul and the body are intertwined, and they're they're not uh, just separate entities, Lord, but they uh, they have a unity. Father, I thank you for uh, just the 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 edification and uh, this this these topics have brought to to me, Lord, and to, uh, hopefully to to those uh, uh, that are listening or will listen to this podcast, Lord. Lord, I thank you for uh, uh, Brother Van and Brother Martin, Lord, and just the the insights they bring also to this topic as well. Father, uh, continue to grow us in your, your the knowledge and understanding of your of your truth, Lord. Uh, as we uh, continue our day, Lord, may we may we be salt and light uh, in our in our walk and our in all aspects of our our life. For it's in your name, I pray, Amen. All right, brothers. Well, we will see you next time. All right. Right.